Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I'm speaking with Fanula Austin about her first novel, Bronte's Mistress. The author lives in New York City, and as it happened, the interview had barely begun when the news media called the 2020 U.S. presidential race. So the whoops and shouting you hear in the second half of the interview are people pouring into the street in response to the news. And now, back to Bronte's Mistress. This sparkling novel explores the life of Lydia Robinson, a reasonably affluent but unhappily married woman who becomes attracted to her son's tutor. That tutor happens to be Branwell Bronte, the brother of Charlotte and Emily. His sister Anne also works for the Robinson household and in fact recommended Branwell for the job. Although the novel opens with the modern discovery of Lydia's memoir, I will start with the fictional memoir itself for reasons that will become obvious as the interview progresses. January, 1843. Already a widow in all but name. Fitting that I must, yet again, wear black. Nobody had greeted me on my return, but Marshall at least had thought of me. She'd lit a feeble fire in my dressing room and laid out fresh morning in the bedroom, spectral against the white sheets. I smoothed out a pleat, fingered a hole in the veil. Just a year since I'd last set these clothes aside, and now death had returned, like an expected, if unwanted, visitor this time not a violent thief in the night. What a homecoming. No husband at the door, no children running down the drive. I'd sat alone in the carriage, huddled under blankets through hours of abject silence, with only the bleak Yorkshire countryside for company. But I didn't have the patience to ring for Marshall now. I tugged, laced, and hooked myself, racing against the cold. I had to contort to close the last fixture. My toe caught in the hem. The landing outside my rooms was empty. The carpet's pattern assaulted my eyes as if I'd been gone for weeks, not days. Home was always strange after an absence, like returning to the setting of a dream. And now, please join me in welcoming Fanula Austin. Hi, Fanula. I look forward to talking with you today. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. You have an interesting history. You were born in the UK. You studied literature. And now here you are in New York working in advertising. How did you decide to write fiction? And having decided, how did you go about it? It might sound a little pretentious, but I don't think I ever decided to write fiction. It was just something I always did. My very first um, nursery school report noted that I like to spend all my time in the writing corner or playing dressing up in the playhouse um, rather than spending time outside with the other children. And from when I was very small, I would always make my own books, um, fold up pieces of printer paper, um, draw pictures, ask my mom to write the words when I was too young to write. And as soon as I was able to write, start adding them myself. So I always knew that I was going to write fiction. And I always knew that um, if I didn't write a book, it was something I would really regret. Um, And so it, it was always the dream for me. What are you writing, not just about the Brontes, but about the lesser-known members of the family, Branwell and Anne? 
I've always loved um, 19th century fiction. So growing up, I read a lot of Victorian literature. Charles Dickens and the Brontes, of course, um, were among the first that I came across. Jane Eyre was the very first Bronte novel um, that I read. In fact, I was so young, it was read to me before I read it alone. And during my teens, I read um, the novels of the other Bronte sisters, Emily and Anne, as well as Charlotte's other works. Um, During my teens, I also read um, my first Bronte biography. It was The Dark Quartet by Lynn Reed Banks. And that's when I first heard about Branwell, the dissolute brother, who was supposed to be the genius of the family, but ended up being the only one not to become famous um, for his writing skills or his painting, another project that he abandoned. Um, But despite this interest, I didn't kind of crystallized this idea of writing a book about the Brontes until years later. So I went on to do um, an undergraduate degree in classics and English at the University of Oxford, uh, followed by a master's degree specializing in the literature of the 19th century. But during that period, while I did some work on Charlotte Bronte and um, student-teacher relationships in her books, actually, um, I mostly was working on 19th century sensation fiction. So Wilkie Collins, Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Um, Then I left the world of academia, I started my career in advertising, and in 2016, I happened to be reading Elizabeth Gaskell's biography of Charlotte Bronte, which was the first great Bronte biography published a couple of years after Charlotte's death. And in that biography, Mrs. Gaskell, who of course was an acclaimed novelist in her own right, wrote North and South, Mary Barton, among others, she tells the story of this older woman, Lydia Robinson, who was rumored to have had an affair with Branwell Bronte, um, who was her son's tutor. It's a really striking, I think, and cutting character assassination. She calls Lydia this wretched and profligate woman who tempted Branwell into the deep disgrace of a deadly crime. She accuses her of making love to this tutor who was 25 to her 43 in front of her children Um, And ultimately ends up blaming her, not just for Branwell's death, but for those of Emily and Anne that followed shortly afterwards. So I was absolutely fascinated by this story. And I guess while I've always loved Charlotte Bronte, for a long time, I'd been thinking about how there's an empathy fail in some of her work. Her heroines are typically of a type, poor and plain and young and virginal. But Lydia Robinson was wealthy and older and beautiful and sexually experienced. She'd had five children by the time Branwell came into her life. And I wanted to read a novel about a woman like her and how in the 19th century, despite having all of those advantages, she was still ultimately a woman with very few options available to her. So the Bronte link was fascinating to me. As I say, I love all of the sisters and their novels, but it was really Lydia's story that was so compelling to me. And of course, Branwell is an important part of that story, but ultimately it's her story and it was her that I chose to center. It really is quite extraordinary. I mean, it, it sounds so very un-Victorian, um, not just Lydia's story because people really don't change that much over time, <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, Mrs. Gaskell's uh, attack on her is um, 
in its own way, you know, so scandalous. It it doesn't really sound like what you would expect. Yeah, I think we have a view sometimes of the Victorians as very decorous. Um, but I think just reading their reviews, right, of books from the period, they're even more vitriolic than some of the one-star reviews you might get on Goodreads today. And certainly gossip and scandal um, were never far from the Victorians' minds. Um, actually, this character assassination um, was so extreme that Lydia was still alive in the period, and her lawyers um, threatened to sue Mrs. Gaskell and her publisher for libel. And so the allegations were retracted. So they only appear in the first edition of the best-selling biography, and Mrs. Gaskell strips them out of later editions um, because she doesn't have evidence. She's working on what Charlotte had told her and other friends based on what Branwell had told Charlotte. And so from the very beginning, Lydia's story has been surrounded by hearsay um, but also a lot of contention about what's true and what's not. And Bronte scholars for generations have debated the affair, whether it happened at all, whether Barnwell was deluded, whether it was just a romantic affair or a sexual one as well. Um, but I think while a lot of people have spoken about it, nobody had shown much sympathy for the position that Lydia might have found herself in. She's totally unable to get a divorce. And I I think it's easy enough to judge people or characters now for committing adultery because leaving your partner is always an option. But for Lydia, that absolutely wouldn't have been the case. And for many women like her, um, if they found themselves in a marriage that was loveless or even abusive, there was very little recourse during this period. As I mentioned in the introduction, the book opens with a modern news report on the finding of the manuscript. What happens there and why start your book from a modern perspective? Yeah, I think it's a really fun way to start the book. I always love documents in books. So as well as the newspaper clipping that opens it, I have letters throughout the novel as well, which I think are fun for breaking up the narrative and giving you this idea of ephemeral artifacts that you're being able to read. But in this newspaper clipping, um, it's meant to be from today. And it, um, it's saying that uh, a manuscript has been discovered at um Queen Ethelberger's Collegiate, which is a school in Yorkshire, a short drive from York. And that school is actually on the site of Fort Green Hall, where Lydia lived with her husband and children, and where for a few years, Anne Bronte lived as governess. And a few years after that, Branwell joined her to be um, the, the sons of the household's tutor. And so in that newspaper clipping, the idea is that Lydia's manuscript has been unearthed in which she tells the story of the affair from her perspective. And of course, the rest of the book gives you the opportunity to read her story in her words. So it is written in the first person. The newspaper clipping was actually something I added much later after I sold the book um, based on conversations with my editor. We wanted a way to remind people who the Brontes were. Um, I know that some readers will be super familiar with the Brontes and like me have grown up on their works. Many others probably have read Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights or seen TV adaptations, um, but are not as familiar, as you say, with Anne and Branwell and the kind of lesser known lore and family. And of course, I have some readers who've never read any of the Bronte's works and are just coming to this because they love historical fiction and reading the stories of forgotten women that history has overlooked or undermined. And so the newspaper clipping allows me to remind people who the Bronte's were, list them in birth order. It's Charlotte, then Branwell, then Emily, then Anne. And of course, um, set up this frisson of you're reading a document that's um, been hidden for centuries, and now you're going to get to read it and hear the true side of the story. 
From there, we move immediately into Lydia Robinson's story. It's 1843. Where is she at this point in her life? Yeah, so I did a lot of research when I was setting out um, on this project to write this novel. And where to start the novel was a real question for me. So I built out a, a timeline in an Excel spreadsheet of all the known events in Lydia's lives and the lives of the Brontes. And I could have started with Lydia as a child. I could have started um, with Lydia as a young woman going into her first marriage um, with Edmund. I also could have started when Anne Bronte comes to the house to be governess. But I ultimately decided to start in the January of 1843, which is the month that Branwell Bronte arrived at the house to be Lydia's son's tutor. And the reason I did that was kind of twofold. One, this is the inciting incident of the novel, the way I've written it. Um, Branwell's arrival kind of forces Lydia to confront the realities of her life and what she's unhappy about about it. And of course, to embark on this pretty disastrous affair with Branwell. Um, but two, I realized from researching what was going on in Lydia's life that this was an incredibly vulnerable period for her. So as the book opens, she's just come back from her mother's funeral her youngest daughter, Georgina, has died um, within a couple of years before. And so you see a woman who at 43 has lost her youngest child, has just lost her mother. Her father um, is senile, and so she's losing his support as well. And as I have depicted it, her marriage has been extremely negatively impacted, partly by the loss of that child. Um, we know that it's very common for couples not to survive um, the loss of a child that they share together. It can be a huge strain on a relationship. And so Lydia is absolutely lost and unmoored. She's also at an age where things are changing for her. She's not old by any stretch of the imagination. She's 43. But her, as her teenage daughters enter their teenage years, they're the ones who are getting attention. It's her oldest daughter, also named Lydia, who's 16 and is being described as beautiful and getting invites to parties. And Lydia feels thrust to the side of her own life. She's also been in this period where her sex life, for instance, has always been linked to procreation. And she's starting to think about her sexuality as something for her and something that can bring her pleasure beyond just producing children um, for her husband and to have that requisite heir. And so I think this is a really interesting time to join Lydia. And, and then the other piece of this is that the readers of historical fiction, most of them are not the same age as 17 or 20-year-old debutantes. Um, most readers of historical fiction are in their 40s or 50s or 60s themselves. And so I was excited to write a historical fiction heroine that was more similar, at least in age, to the readers who would be consuming her story. And how would you describe her as a personality? I mean, is she has she always done what was expected of her or... And is she chafing at the bits or is she, has she always been something of a rebel? Yeah, I see Lydia as a person who, if she'd lived in a different time and different place, would have been quite brilliant. Um, she seems to be pretty intelligent. She's also talented, especially when it comes to music. She's a great pianist and singer. But she's been brought up and raised to do one thing, which is to nab that husband and then ornament his home and have children for him. And there's a passage in which she describes how she's just always done things because they were the good thing to do. So she talks about her religion, for instance, and she says, being a Christian was just something I was good at. 
like crossing my ankles and smiling at the grown-up visitors. So she's the child who's tried to be good. And as I mentioned, her mother's just tired when the book starts, and there are a few references throughout the novel to Lydia taking the lessons that her mother taught her about this is the way things work. This is why you have to get a husband. This is why you have to stay thin. This is why you have to look good. And I see that as sort of maternal tough love, keeping her on the right path to protect her daughter in a world where women really only can exist um, if they attach themselves to a man. So Lydia, I think, internally is a little bit of a rebel. She's pretty judgmental about the people around her. She can have quite a caustic and I would say at times woody tongue. Um, she enjoys, for instance, she has a friendship with the local doctor and they enjoy talking about their neighbors a little viciously when they gossip. Um, but a lot of that has been restrained, kept inside, fought down as she keeps up appearances. And I think appearances are all important to Lydia. Um, her standing in the community, the fact that she is mistress of her own home, she's very obsessed with her appearance. And it's not like she can get a box of hair dye. She's very upset that her dark locks are turning gray. And nowadays, she would go to a salon. She'd probably have her own career. She could leave her husband if she was unhappy. She could have been educated much more, right? Like she hasn't had a chance to um, go off to Cambridge as her husband is, uh, as her husband did. Um, and so I just see Lydia as the tragic victim of the period in which she lived. So let's talk a bit about her husband, Edmund. Um, he was once someone she loved. Uh, when we meet them, their relationship is troubled. And you mentioned that the death of, of the child, Georgina, was a big part of that. Uh, were they already under stress, though? Um, I have always had the sense that being a Victorian wife, or even probably a Victorian husband, wasn't always, you know, as comfortable as it might have been. Yeah. So we get some flashbacks to early in their relationship. And as you say, they do seem to have been happy at the beginning. And Lydia certainly seems to have believed that she loved him. Uh, but she is kind of just following through the motions. And is she in love with him or with the idea of being married? Um, she talks about when they return to the marital home and him spinning her around and saying, your mistress here, here, and here. So her relationship with Edmund has always been bound up in status. And the fact that she's a married woman now, which gives her some more still limited freedom, but gives her a standing in society. With the disintegration of the relationship, I wanted to give some information about that, but it was also a purposeful choice not to give us all the details. I think that it's very common for couples to find themselves growing apart, especially when they've been under stress, and especially in a time where there's such a chasm between men's and women's experiences that it can be very hard for them to relate to each other. So early in the novel, Lydia is trying to get back those feelings with her husband. We see her trying to initiate sex with him. We see her trying to talk to him at the breakfast table. But his interests are absolutely different from hers. He's interested in hunting and gambling over horses, and in the estate, managing their finances, all of which Lydia knows next to nothing about. Lydia is interested in music and reading novels, which he sees as pretty silly. Um, whereas when Branwell Bronte comes into her life, of course, art and literature are all important in the Bronte's very romantic upbringing on the edge of the moor, playing, play acting with each other and building play worlds. So I see Lydia and Edmund as just victims of being in these separate spheres. They even have separate bedrooms. And so there are a few references through the book to 
Lydia has to lie waiting at night to see if her husband's going to visit her for sex. And this is the first time where she's trying to initiate and she's saying, well, I actually want a sexual relationship for me, um, which is a novel idea that Edmund reacts very poorly to. He sees her as too old for all that or what's the point when they already had children. Um, on the other hand, we do see some remaining members, like moments of tenderness between them. Um, there's a moment where they host a dinner party early in the novel that the Reverend Bronte, the Bronte's father, attends. That's based on a real event that happened. Um, and at that, we see him being proud of her um, because she looks nice and because she's playing the perfect hostess. So he's very proud of her whenever she's putting up the correct front. Um, and he's always very upset with her if he feels that she's making a scene or making him look bad. Um, so there's a moment later, um, shortly after that, um, when Lydia gets very upset at the Easter luncheon held by her mother-in-law. And Edmund is upset because of how this reflects on him and his image um, versus the way Lydia feels. So I'd say in that they're pretty united. Um, but what it, what it means to have the perfect family in the eyes of others could be pretty dysfunctional um, behind closed doors. We see him exclusively through Lydia's eyes, and Lydia's obviously not happy with him and has lots of reasons not to be. Does he have a hidden side, or is he really the kind of shallow creature that he comes across as in the book? I think there are hidden depths to Edmund, but because Lydia doesn't know, we can't know. So, for instance, I've mentioned a couple of times that they have stopped sleeping together. We never absolutely find out the reason why, but I think there are a few possibilities here. Um, one is the trauma of the loss of the child, but another is we later find out that Edmund's health is failing, and I think it's possible that he's struggling with impotence. Um, and of course, now he would seek medical help for that. There's things that could be done. Um, but in this period, there's a lot of shame attendant on that. We also find out that with the managing of the household finances, things are not going as well as Lydia had assumed. And so I see Edmund as as restricted by what a Victorian man is meant to do as um, Lydia is by what a Victorian woman's meant to do, right? He may feel like he's failing as a man because he's unable to perform sexually or he's failing as a man because he's unable to provide for the family. But rather than sharing those feelings with Lydia, he forces them down inside. But as you say, we never get absolute access to him. And I did really want him to remain a mystery. And there are times where Lydia speaks about how men are a mystery to her, when they, the women leave the dinner table to go to the drawing room, what do the men talk about over their brandy classes? What do they learn about when they go off to university? And we do get these patches of sunlight where Edmund did share some stuff with her when they were younger. For instance, he confides in her about his very first sexual experiences with prostitutes while he was at university, which seems like a pretty personal thing for him to have told her. But these are occasional glimpses she gets into the male world. And I see her as very jealous of that exclusion and as somebody who would have been happier if she'd been born a man in this period. So I'm going to skip forward a bit so that we can talk about the Brontes. Um, we know from what we've said already that uh, Anne and Branwell are both in the story. They're very different characters, though. So um, they do seem to be close. But tell us about them uh, and how they fit into the Robinson household. And then how would you describe them as your characters, not necessarily the historical personages on whom they are based? 
Yeah. So I think it's important to understand the Bronte family dynamics. So there were two older sisters who died very young, uh, Mariah and Elizabeth. Then there was Charlotte, who became de facto the eldest, though she was initially the third. Then Branwell, then Emily and Anne. And what we know about the Brontes is they essentially, growing up, divided into two pairs, Charlotte and Bronte, and sorry, Charlotte and Branwell, and then Emily and Anne. So for instance, Charlotte and Branwell um, had a make-believe world together, as did Emily and Anne, the kingdoms of Angria and Gondol, um, respectively. And so those are the close pairs. And I was very interested by the fact that Anne and Branwell are not a close pair, but they're within the kind of larger household, but they find themselves um, kind of sharing a home and the same employer. As I mentioned, Anne has been at the house longer. So when the novel starts, we already see that there's a history in her relationship with Lydia. Um, there is a little bit of jealousy in that relationship um, because Lydia feels like Anne Bronte coddles um, the children and is kind to them. Um, to the point of excess. She says, it's because you're not a mother. Um, if you're a mother, it's not your place to coddle. Like you need to tell people the tough truths. But Anne Bronte seems to be a very mild person, a very quiet person, but maybe behind that mildness and that quietness, quite judgmental too. So Lydia relates an incident where she read a letter that Anne was writing back home to Charlotte in which she described Lydia in unflattering terms. And that letter is actually based on a passage in Agnes Grey, um, Anne Bronte's first novel, which is believed to be pretty autobiographical and draw on some of her experiences working in Lydia's household. Branwell, on the other hand, um, is not quiet and unassuming. He um, is boisterous, confident, um, he is incredibly romantic and excessive, sees himself as a Byronic hero, which is the role in which he cast a lot of his characters in the world that he created with Charlotte. Um, but there's an incredible tenderness between the two. I see a protectiveness in Anne's um, feelings towards Branwell, even though he's our elder, because he was volatile, because he was prone to drinking and died ultimately an alcoholic and opium addict. There's a protectiveness in how all the sisters treated him, I think. Like, we need to watch Branwell. We need to look after Branwell. And Anne Bronte is in an incredibly difficult position. She's trying to keep her own job. And uh, it could be scary to have someone start at your workplace who you think could um, reflect badly on you. And so Lydia does overhear a conversation between Anne and the Reverend Bronte after that dinner party, um, where the Reverend Bronte is saying, this is so great for Branwell, you know, he's away from all the temptations of drinking and the big city out here in the country. And Anne is expressing, well, what about me? Like, this is jeopardizing my livelihood, because he's something of a loose cannon. Um, so... I think that what's interesting for me to imagine is the private conversations that must be happening between Anne and Branwell in this period, conversations that Lydia, of course, does not witness, though she does see moments between them. She sees Anne judging how much Branwell is drinking at the dinner table and trying to dissuade him from drinking more through subtle cues. Um, but we never see them in their most private moment or see Anne maybe be a little bit more strident. In, in her conversations with Branwell and um, telling him what to do and what not to do. 
Anne does have a few moments where she asserts herself with Lydia, again, loosely based on some of the scenes in Agnes Grey, um, but I didn't want to take the language, absolutely, because I wanted this to be Lydia's perspective on the scenes and her memories of what had gone on between the governess and the lady of the house versus just parroting um, what Anne Bronte had written in Agnes Grey. Um, but in those moments of confrontation, you see that Anne believes that just because somebody is quiet, it doesn't mean that they're not passionate and they don't feel. Whereas Lydia is a much more demonstrative person, something I think she shares with Branwell. Um, they're given to these more romantic flights of fancy, this my more highfalutin language, um, and this kind of feeling that they should declare their feelings um, for each other and to the world, even when it's a little less appropriate. Anne Bronte, however, is all about suffering silently, waiting for her God-given reward. And her religiosity is something that I really wanted to hit upon because I do think that's something that marks her novels um, apart from Jane Eyre, um, Wuthering Heights, and of course, Charlotte's other books. Anne Bronte's are the most Christian um, the, and they're the most obsessed with talking about moral, morality and philosophy. And so that was an important part of Anne's character that I wanted to get across. And what is it that um, most appeals to Lydia about Branwell? Uh, is it is there some kind of, you know, let's take care of Branwell mothering instinct or is it pure passion? I'd say neither. I think the thing that she's most interested in Branwell is that he's interested in her. So she says he really listens to me um, and he doesn't see her pursuits as frivolous. So when he hears her play her music, he says that you two are an artist. He tells her she's a poet. He's interested in what she thinks about her novels, whereas Edmund, her husband, has always written those off as kind of silly women's things. Um, and so Branwell really flatters Lydia um, with his attention, especially in this period where she feels like she's getting less and less attention and her young daughters are getting more and more attention. Um, so I think that's a key part of it. Of course, I did want there to be some physical attraction there, and Branwell is 25 to her 43. Um, you know, we have some rippling muscles, that kind of Byronic hero, um, the romantic brooding man in the corner. There's certainly an attraction there physically, too. But I think ultimately, it's just that he, he sees her. Um, that's what she says, that like, no one had really looked at me to see me in years, and yet this boy is looking at me and seeing me. He's interested in my opinions. He's interested in debating poetry with me and talking about novels. And I think it's a real shared intellectual pursuit. Um, of course, how true is that? Like, is the question here. And Branwell is not, as we know now, the genius of the family. Um, at one point, Lydia tells Anne Bronte that she can't understand Branwell because he's a writer and an artist. Which, of course, is quite funny because Anne is the true writer and the artist. Um, I think she's a real genius, just like her other sisters, even if she's been sometimes overlooked. Um, and so the idea that the artistic person is maybe not the flamboyant one who always talks about being an artist is something that I'm interested in here as well. That Anne Bronte quietly behind the scenes while doing her job properly is already starting to write. Whereas Branwell, who talks about writing all the time, mostly he just ends up drinking. So Lydia doesn't really get along all that well with the other women in her life either. She has a conflicted relationship with her mother-in-law. She has a somewhat difficult relationship with her three daughters. Um, could you talk a little bit about uh, that element of her life? Yeah, internalized misogyny was something that was really important to me in this book. The dedication is to the women who didn't write their novels. 
And I think while it's great to have stories about suffragettes and revolutionaries, most women in the past were not actively fighting for change. They were just trying to get on with their own lives. And Lydia is very much in that camp. Um, at one point, her middle daughter, Bessie, um, asks her for help. And she writes back and tells her, what would you have me do? Change the world and our place in it. And I think the reader by that point might be yelling at the page and saying, yes, absolutely. That's what I want you to do. I want you to fight. I want you to tell her to do something different, um, to marry for love, to reject this, um, this match in this situation that she's being forced into. Um, but Lydia doesn't. She is one of those people who's like, well, that's the way the world is, right? Suck it up, um, which I think is an attitude that a lot of people still have today. And so with that, Lydia is not as sympathetic to other women as she could be. Um, she feels the unfairness of her own situation without extrapolating out to a wider idea of how society could shift. She is, for instance, not at all sympathetic to her servants. Um, She's not sympathetic to Anne Bronte. There's a moment where Anne Bronte faints and Lydia's first thought is she can't be ill because if she is, I'll have to find another governess, which might seem extreme. Um, but I've heard people today in New York City who have nannies or babysitters who call in sick um, express extreme annoyance about the inconvenience to themselves before they're concerned about their babysitter or their nanny's health. Um, so I think that's a very human way to react, even if it's not always the kindest reaction. And so, yes, Lydia, she has some tricky relationships. I'd say with her daughters, she does love them and she's trying to do the best for them. But she thinks the best for them is to give up any romantic ideals and to be pragmatic in their approach to their relationships with men. And, of course, always firmly focused on money. Um, she is very against the idea of marrying someone of a lower social class or who doesn't have the means to provide and that makes sense to me. Why would you want to set your children up um, for failure? It's part of her job as a good mother in the 1840s to make sure that her children marry well. In some ways, I see her as a smarter version of Mrs. Bennett from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, right? She also has daughters to marry off. But while Mrs. Bennett is silly, Lydia is quite a shrewd person. Um, and so in her, I think it can come off as manipulative. The mother-in-law takes all of this to an extreme. The mother-in-law is probably the, the cruelest character in the novel, and she and Lydia have an extremely contentious relationship. They're competitive about Edmund's attentions. Um, her mother-in-law judges everything that Lydia does. And we see that in the early years of the relationship, even when Edmund and Lydia were happy, the mother-in-law was always a cloud. She lived in the house for a period. She undermined a lot of Lydia's decisions about the management of the house. Even the color and pattern of the curtains that Lydia hangs in her rooms was determined by her mother-in-law, um, who took the opportunity when Lydia was on bed rest with her first pregnancy to put her own stamp on the house. And um, for writing that character, I've had a lot of good feedback on her, but what I actually did, I, I'm not married and anyone I've dated, I've actually quite liked their parents. So this was not drawing on any personal experience, but I spent time on internet forums and particularly on one called Just No M-I-L on Reddit, which is Just No Mother-in-Law, where all day, every day, women share the horrific stories of what their terrible mother-in-laws have done and the ways in which they've undermined them and acted passive aggressive in their household or played to make their husband turn against them. And just by consuming those stories, I'd read them on the subway um, when taking a break and see what 
things people have been doing today, it really helped me kind of get into the mindset of those unhealthy family dynamics. Um, and often there's a kind of odd eatable edge to them, right? And there is a moment where Edmund's mother is caressing his head and his hair. And Lydia is a little bit freaked out by this, as I think many people would be at the closeness of that relationship, and really sees her mother-in-law as a rival for her husband's attentions and affections in some way. You've done a wonderful job of sketching the major themes of the novel, so I'm just asking you now to summarize them. What would you like readers to take away from Bronte's Mistress? I think this is a hard one for me because I I write for grown-ups versus for children because I want people to come to their own conclusions. And I think that's ultimately what I wanted in Bronte's Mistress. I could have written this story as a total vindication of Lydia Robinson, right? Like she's always been painted as the villainess, but in reality, it was all Branwell's fault. She was totally maligned. But I don't think that life is often as simple as that. I think life is complicated and there are many shades of gray. I think Lydia does things at times that I would hope I wouldn't do. Um, I think at times she can be too harsh to those around her and could show more kindness. But I think it's very human to get it wrong. And I think few of us can hold up to the standards of what likable characters are meant to do in books. Um, I hope that by the end of the novel that people can see why Lydia might have made the choices that she did. And maybe have a hard look in the mirror and think, what would I do in that time period? I think it's a fantasy of ours that if we lived in the past, we would be the people pushing for change, marching in the streets, um, being revolutionaries, and being honestly like the Brontes, right? Like obscure sisters raised on the edge of a moor who are still being talked about all these years later. But most people are not like that. The Brontes were exceptional and are exceptional, which is why we're still speaking about them. And what about the thousands of women, tens of thousands of women through the years whose stories are utterly lost to us because they didn't think they were worth anything, worth writing down? Um, and so, yes, I, I don't want to give people a conclusion when they come away about the affair, whether Lydia's a villain, whether she's misunderstood. I, I hope they come to their own conclusions. but. I, I try, I think that storytelling is about prompting empathy and the act of writing in the first person and putting yourself truly in someone else's shoes is one of the most magical things to me about writing. And I hope that readers can feel that when they read the novel. This book has just came out in August, and but it does say on your website that you're working on a second novel. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I can't say too much, unfortunately, um, but it is historical fiction again. And it is also based on a real woman, um, this time someone who um, was artistic in her own right, which was really exciting for me. It is set in a slightly different time period and in a different country. So that was really fun from a research perspective, though harder because some of my research wasn't even in English this time. Um, but I'm excited for what I'm able to share more. And I think a, a common theme here is untold women's stories, um, though this character, in terms of personality, is very different from Lydia. Well, I wish you all success, and I hope we get to talk about that too someday. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Fanola. No, thank you for having me. And yes, I'd love to be back. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I am C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books and Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Fanula Austin about Bronte's Mistress. You can find out more about her at www.fanulaaustin.com. 
Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histric. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplezzi.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.